Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is Anti-War News for Thursday, July 6th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of AntiWar.com today, Ukraine serves as a testing ground for Western arms. So Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov told Financial Times in an interview published Wednesday that his country serves as an ideal testing ground for Western weaponry. So Reznikov said that Ukraine's Western backers can see how their weapons work in a war against Russia to see if they're efficient or need upgrades. Reznikov said, quote, for the military industry of the world, you can't invent a better testing ground, end quote. So Reznikov has actually said this before, uh, last year when he was asking for the U.S. and its NATO allies to send more weapons. He said, quote, we are interested in testing modern systems in the fight against the enemy, and we are inviting arms manufacturers to test the new products here, end quote. So that was a quote from July 2022. So in this interview on Wednesday, Reznikov said that U.S. officials were very happy when Ukraine's military reported that a U.S. Patriot missile system downed a Kinzhal, which is a Russian hypersonic missile. Reznikov said that a U.S. official called the news fantastic. Reznikov said that Russia has countered some of the Western weaponry, including the HIMARS rocket systems, which fire GPS-guided munitions. He said that the HIMARS were highly accurate when first delivered to Ukraine, but that Russia has found ways to jam the system. Reznikov said, quote, the Russians come up with a countermeasure. We inform our partners and they make a new countermeasure against this countermeasure, end quote. Uh, he also said that many other countries are watching the developments on the battlefield in Ukraine, including those that are armed with Russian weapons. He's saying everybody's watching. And I think, you know, for the U.S. and NATO, you know, that's exactly what Ukraine is. It's a testing ground for weapons. It's a dumping ground for weapons, you know, for weapons that used to be obsolete, like the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that were out of production for 20 years, as Raytheon said. Now they're in hot demand. Um, and, you know, it just goes to show that I think, you know, this is a Ukrainian official saying that his country is a testing ground for Western weapons. And I think that's just exactly how a lot of people in the U.S. view Ukraine. So he also touted maintenance contracts that Ukraine has signed with Western arms companies, calling it an example of how Ukraine is a de facto NATO member. Reznikov has previously referred to Ukraine as a de facto member of the Western Alliance. And earlier this year, you know, he he's made some very candid remarks about the U.S. relationship with Ukraine, just about the whole situation with this war. He said at, in January of this year that Ukraine was shedding blood for a NATO mission. So, you know, it's very clear that this is a pro proxy war the U.S. is funding against Russia. You know, and that's something some people try to dispute. But even, you know, a lot of, you know, the people in Washington, again, kind of mainstream, uh, you know, think tankers in that, you know, say that, yeah, this, this is certainly is a proxy war. Um, and when you see the Ukrainian defense minister say things like that, that they're shedding blood for a NATO mission, it's really uh, revealing of, of the true situation. 
All right, the next one here. IAEA says that there's no sign of explosives at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, that is the UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, said on Wednesday that its inspectors have seen no explosives at the Russian-controlled Zaporozhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, despite claims from Kiev that Russia had planted bombs. According to an IAEA press release, Director General Rafael Grossi said that the agency's experts have, quote, in recent days and weeks inspected parts of the facility, including some sections of the perimeter of the large cooling pond, and have also conducted regular walk-downs across the site so far without observing any visible indications of mines or explosives, end quote. And the press release said that Grossi has requested access to more areas in the ZMPP, saying that they need to inspect, you know, further. And Grossi said, quote, with military tension and activities increasing in the region where this major nuclear power plant is located, our experts must be able to verify the facts on the ground. Their independent and objective reporting would help clarify the current situation at the site, which is crucial at a time like this, with unconfirmed allegations and counter allegations, end quote. So Zelensky claimed on Tuesday that Russia planted explosives at this power plant, and that's something Ukrainian officials have been claiming for a few weeks now. And they're saying that, uh, you know, an attack, Russia could sabotage the plant very soon, saying kind of like it's an imminent thing and claiming that Russia would try to make the damage look like Ukrainian shelling. And then you have Russian officials now accusing Ukraine of plotting to blow up the facility using a dirty bomb, using missiles, you know, as opposed to uh, explosives or anything like that. Again, the plant is Russian controlled. It's a very important thing to understand here because it doesn't make much sense for Russia to blow up a nuclear power plant that it controls. Um, so the Kremlin said Wednesday that the risk of Ukraine carrying out sabotage attacks at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant was really high. And so the plant is located, again, in the Zaporozhye Oblast on the Dnieper River, on the south bank of the Dnieper River. Ukraine controls the territory to the north. And another thing always important to point out, if you remember last fall, uh, this plant was being shelled a lot and the town around it and areas near it. And Ukraine was blaming Russia the whole time saying that it was Russia doing it. And of course, Russia was saying it was Ukraine. And again, the key context here is that Russia controls the plant. They have since March 2022. And then we later learned, you know, Russia was saying that Ukraine was launching these cross river attacks, trying to retake the plant. And then a few months later, there was a report in the Times of London that said, you know, Ukraine did, in fact, launch uh, an attack on the plant, try to cross the river. And it was supported by the U.S. because they used the HIMARS rocket systems. And a Pentagon official said that they provided real-time intelligence during this assault. So, you know, you just got to keep all this in mind when you see these allegations from Ukraine claiming that Russia is planning to blow this plant up. It just doesn't make much sense from my perspective for Russia to do that. Um, so but let me know what you guys think. <laughs> let me know your theories about this. All right, the next one here. NATO chief says that most Wagner forces are not in Belarus. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Wednesday that not many members of Russia's Wagner group followed their exiled leader to Belarus. 
So Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is now living in exile in Belarus after his short-lived mutiny, and other members of the force were given the option of going there as well. And their other options were signing contracts with the Russian defense ministry or going home to their families. Poland has called for a tough response from NATO to counter any Wagner presence in Belarus, but Stoltenberg says that he has not seen the mercenary force go there. He said, quote, we have seen some preparations for the hosting of Wagner forces. We have so far not seen so many of them arriving, end quote. Um, It's just interesting for him to say that because there's been kind of a lot of hype in the media, you know, showing satellite pictures of what is supposedly, you know, bases being built in Belarus for the Wagner fighters. Uh, But right now, you know, it's just not clear how many of them are going to end up there. And uh, Lukashenko, the Belarusian president who brokered the deal, has said that he's ready to accommodate Wagner fighters who choose to go to the country. But again, it's unclear how many will wind up there. Stoltenberg stressed that it was too early to tell what will become of Wagner. He said that the group is still active in Africa and that some fighters are in Ukraine, but not near the front lines. So the Wagner fighters fought in the brutal 10-month Battle of Bakhmut and withdrew after capturing the city at the end of May. So they got out of there. Prigozhin was sitting, you know, uh, during, you know, his troops were were out of the, were not on the front lines when this mutiny happened. Um, and the Russian defense ministry said that they had to sign contracts, which, which would have given, you know, the Russian military control of Wagner. And that was a big motive for his, you know, little uprising. Uh, so that's what he says, so. Uh, All right. So the next one here, Lithuania says that NATO will give Ukraine a lot at the upcoming NATO summit. So Lithuanian President Gitanas Nasede, he said Wednesday that Ukraine will receive a lot from NATO at this Vilnius summit, which is in Lithuania. It's being hosted in his country um, and it's going to start next week and it will be held from July 11th to the 12th. And NATO members are still debating what new pledges Ukraine will receive at the summit. Kiev wants a guarantee from NATO that it can join the alliance after the war, but the U.S. and Germany have expressed reluctance to offer that. So uh, the Lithuanian president said, quote, I have a sense that we will find formulations which will not disappoint Ukrainians and will convey more than we are used to than we are used to saying, end quote. So he said Zelensky might not receive everything that he wants, but he will certainly receive a lot. And Zelensky is calling for, you know, roadmap, clear path to NATO membership. And a day earlier, uh, in another interview, the Lithuanian president said that NATO should disregard concerns about guarantees for Ukraine provoking Russia. He says, don't worry about what Russia thinks. We have to be bolder in um, giving these promises to Ukraine. So Ukraine was first promised that it would eventually become a NATO member at a 2008 summit in Bucharest, but it was never given the clear timeline. U.S. Ambassador to NATO Julianne Smith told reporters last week that NATO allies feel that they will come to an agreement that's stronger than the promise that was made in 2008. So that Bucharest summit was is a very pivotal moment when it comes to NATO's relationship with Ukraine, that and of course 2014 when Viktor Yanukovych was thrown out and a Western friendly government uh, was put in. So she's saying it's going to be stronger than that. So again, you know, this is there's a lot of speculation on what this could be. And I've been kind of covering this a lot, but we'll see pretty soon what 
uh, new promises that they give Ukraine. And whatever it is, Russia is not going to be happy about it. And it's just going to ensure that this war drags on and on. All right, the next one here. China says that the U.S. is turning Taiwan into a powder keg. So the Chinese Defense Ministry on Wednesday said the U.S. was turning Taiwan into a powder keg in a warning over the Biden administration approving new arms deals for Taiwan worth $440 million. So Colonel Tan Kefi, he's the spokesman for the Chinese Defense Ministry, uh, you know, reiterated that China is firmly opposed to U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. The new arms sales, which I covered um, earlier this week, are for $332 million in 30 millimeter ammunition and related equipment and $108 million for spare parts for various military equipment, vehicles and some weapons. Um, so Tan said, quote, we urge the U.S. side to abide by the one China principle and the three China U.S. joint communiques immediately cease arms sales to Taiwan, stop any form of military collusion with Taiwan, earnestly fulfill its commitment to not support Taiwan independence and stop going further down the road and dangerous path, end quote. So this is kind of a warning China gives a lot, but I figured I would use this article to kind of explain a little bit what he's talking about, because China always says the U.S. has to uphold its commitment to the three communiques and stop selling weapons to Taiwan. So the U.S. agreed to sever formal dip diplomatic and military ties with Taiwan as part of its normalization agreement with China, and that was formalized in 1979, and they had two communiques then, and then in 1982... They issued a third joint communique regarding U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. And I'll just read from the section about that's really the important part. It says, quote, the U.S. government states that it does not seek to carry out a long term policy of arms sales to Taiwan, that its arms sales to Taiwan will not exceed either in qualitative or in quantitative terms. The level of those supplied in recent years since the establishment of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China, and that it intends to gradually to reduce its arms sales to Taiwan, leading over a period of time to a final resolution, end quote. So it does sound like that the U.S. agreed to eventually stop arms sales or at least reduce them to a level. And, you know, they've they've increased in recent years during the Clinton administration. If you look, there was actually a ton of arms sales to Taiwan. Um, but, you know, Trump came in, he approved a bunch of arms sales and it's continued under Biden. Uh, but so you, you have that joint communique, but pretty much immediately after and around that time, the U.S. gave itself all sorts of, you know, loopholes. And this is all very confusing, diplomatic, intentionally vague diplomatic agreements. And, you know, they're not treaties or anything, kind of just statements that they're issuing together. So the U.S. government left its options open to continue arms sales to Taiwan. During negotiations with China on the third communique, the U.S. agreed to six assurances for Taiwan, one of which stated that the U.S. would not set a date for termination of arms sales to Taiwan. And another assurance given to Taiwan said that the U.S. will uphold the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, which states that the U.S. will make available to Taiwan uh, defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense capability. So basically, on one hand, they're telling China, yeah, we'll, we'll reduce arms sales. And then on the other hand, they're telling Taiwan, uh, you know, don't worry about it. We'll keep doing what we're doing. 
And then on the day that the 1982 communique was issued, President Reagan said in an internal memo that the U.S. willingness to reduce arms sales to Taiwan is conditioned on China's commitment to a peaceful solution to the, the situation and basically saying that, you know, if China is more aggressive, you know, then we won't stop our arms sales. And now we have this situation where the U.S. is increasing support for Taiwan militarily and diplomatically, and China is reacting to that by putting the island under more military pressure. And then, you know, the U.S. points at that activity as reason to sell more arms. So we're just in this cycle of escalation. The U.S. is going to keep the arms sales going, keep uh, increasing support in other ways, and China is going to keep putting Taiwan under more military pressure. And I don't really see that, you know, a way out of this, unfortunately seems like this is the, the the path we're on for now. I hope that wasn't too confusing. <laughs> um, and, you know, with this stuff, let me know, you know, if you think there's a, you know, if you know much about this issue, let me know if there's other things you think I should cover or, you know, it's tough sometimes, you know, it's tough to get this exactly right uh, when you're covering the issue of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, U.S.-China-Taiwan relationship. All right, the next one here, this is an article from the South China Morning Post. Taiwanese presidential hopeful stresses cross-strait status quo in bid to appease the U.S. in Beijing. So uh, Taiwanese presidential hopeful and, and vice president William Lai Ching-Tae, he's the current vice president. He's in the Democratic Progressive Party, which leans more independence. But he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And again, the Taiwan presidential elections are coming up in in January 2024, so they're going to be a pretty big deal. But what he's saying in this op-ed is that he will not declare independence. And, and this South China Morning Post article is saying that was a sign to the U.S. that it won't stir up too that he won't stir up too much trouble if he gets elected, and it's a sign to China that he's not trying to change, you know, to declare independence. But at the same time, he's also calling for you know more weapons, weapons, you know, deterrence as they call it. Um, so I think he's going to continue what the current government that he's in, you know, under President Tsai, it's going to continue these policies. The The big deal would be if the Kuomintang wins or there's the other party, which I'm blanking on their name, um, but they're considered somewhere in the middle. Kuomintang, more mainland friendly. DPP, more independence minded. And then the, I want to say Taiwan's People's Party, but I might be wrong about that. They're more in the middle. All right, the next one here, the GOP pushes back on effort to renew spying tools. So this is from Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute, and it is about an effort by the Biden administration to continue a uh, surveillance uh, tool that they have. So lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, particularly in the GOP, are pushing back against the renewal of a law authorizing a tool used by U.S. spy agencies to conduct warrantless surveillance on foreign targets and Americans with whom they may be interacting. So the New York Times article that uh, the New York Times had a write up on this and they just went after these, you know, conservative members of the Republican Party for not wanting to renew this. It's really something basically coming out in favor of the surveillance state because the Republic, some Republicans, not all of them uh, are against it. So but there are still Democrats that are good on this, even though a lot have kind of become more pro, you know, national security state. Congressional leaders in both parties have warned the White House that the law which legalizes this unconstitutional surveillance of American citizens, Section 207, which was enacted in 2008, they're saying it will not be renewed absent significant changes. 
For instance, such reforms would prohibit federal agents from obtaining phone, email, and other electronic communication records of Americans interfacing with targeted foreign individuals. Rep. Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, he said, quote, there's no way we're going to be for reauthorizing that in its current form. No possible way. We're concerned about surveillance, period, end quote. Congress granted the spy agencies this authority by creating Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. Since then, it's been renewed twice with strong Republican backing. But for years, this law has faced opposition from Democrats over sim- similar conservative concerns that, you know, the concerns that the conservatives have now, that it grossly violates American civil liberty. So hopefully this means that they won't be able to renew it or at least they'll reform it. Hopefully they don't renew it at all. Uh, but Matt Gates said, quote, you couldn't water waterboard me into voting to reauthorize 702. These 702 authorities were abused against people in Washington on January 6th, and they were abused against people who were affiliated with the BLM movement, and I'm equally aggrieved by both of those things, end quote. So saying that they've been abused by, to go after people on both sides of the political spectrum. And, but Gates did support the program's reauthorization five years ago. Uh, but a lot has happened since then. You know, a lot of this is over the, F, you know, the warrant FBI surveillance of, of the Trump campaign and, and all, you know, things like that, that have happened in recent years. So yeah, hopefully, you know, the, Biden administration. Oh, another thing I should have mentioned in the article is that the Biden administration is really trying to sell this, that we need to renew 702. And the way they're trying to sell it to Republicans is saying, of course, that they need it, you know, for China, China, you know, say China enough, you might be able to scare them into uh, voting for it. All right. The next one here is another one from the Libertarian Institute. This is from Kyle Anzalone. Saudi security forces kill and rape migrants on the Yemen border. So a new report found that Saudi security forces deployed along the country's border with Yemen are committing horrific human rights abuses against Ethiopian migrants. The report found hundreds of people have been killed by the Saudis and a 13-year-old girl was raped. So the Mixed Migration Center, which is a group funded by the UN, the US, the UK, and the European Union, they released their findings on Wednesday. The report read, quote, large numbers of Ethiopian migrants are s- systematically being killed on the border between Yemen and Saudi Arabia on a daily basis, directly and deliberately by security officials operating under Saudi Arabian state authority. The targeted nature and scale of these killings and the fact that the perpetrators are operating under state authority makes this border crossing an ex- exceptionally lethal one, end quote. In 2022, nearly 800 migrants were killed and over 1,700 were injured by Saudi mortar and small arms fire, according to this report. The group notes that the number and its reports are estimates and that the true toll could be far higher. The group is still compiling data for 2023, but it says that the atrocities are continuing. At least 75 people are said to have been killed by the Saudis this year. And, you know, I've seen reports about this you know, a few years ago, but I didn't know the scale of it was this bad. And so we've had this kind of de facto ceasefire in Yemen between the Houthis and the Saudis, which means no Saudi airstrikes in Yemen and no Houthi attacks inside Saudi Arabia. That hasn't happened. But reading Yemen media, there is always reports of Saudi shelling across the border. So, I mean, I don't understand what the situation is, you know, where exactly these migrants are coming from, but 
you know, it seems pretty bad. And actually, one of the last big Saudi airstrikes in Yemen was in January 2022, and it targeted a migrant detention center, and it killed about 91 uh, civilians. So, you know, maybe that was part of this, their operation against these migrants. I'm not sure. But really brutal stuff, and those are, you know, the the Saudi military, especially the Air Force, is very much propped up by the uh, U.S., all right, uh, so the last one here is just kind of a recap on the stuff that happened in Janine in the West Bank City. So the Israeli forces are out of there, and now people are returning. They're burying their dead and inspecting the destruction left by Israel's aggression. So thousands of people were displaced, and now they're starting to return home, and a lot of people are finding that their homes were destroyed. And the death toll right now is 12 people. And at least 120 others were wounded, including 20 in critical conditions. So I guess that means the death toll could rise. And the Israeli army said that one of their soldiers was killed in the assault. And one thing that is interesting is that they had funerals and Palestinian Authority uh, officials, you know, went down there and they kind of drove them out of there. They're not happy with the Palestinian Authority. Um, they see them as kind of collaborators with the Israeli uh, occupation forces. So. Very rough situation for the people living there, and we're probably going to see something like this happen again soon. You know, this just makes the resistance grow when you go in and destroy thousands of people's homes. I don't know if, it, you know, that many homes were destroyed, but 3,000 people were displaced, at least temporarily. You know, what do you expect? That's just going to make more resentment. Uh, but that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Ann Garrison, the impending pro-war Democratic Party takeover of Pacifica Radio. And that's over at the Gray Zone. We have one from Ted Snyder, as America influence wanes, China's grows. One from Norman Solomon, U.S. media blind to American war carnage. That's over at Asia Times. We have one from Jeffrey Sachs, how JFK would pursue peace in Ukraine. That's at Common Dreams. And our spotlight is from Blaze Malley. Top economists say Senator Menendez is spreading fake news on sanctions. Uh, but that's everything. You could go check out our blog, watch Conflicts of Interest, which is Kyle Anzalone's uh, great show. A um, few other thing, interesting things in there. Talk from uh, John Mearsheimer about Ukraine. Um, but yeah, so you could always help us out if you go to antiwar.com slash donate. Um, you know, another way to really help is to share this show and to like and subscribe and leave comments and reviews and all that stuff really helps out. Um, but I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.